How does one answer a graceless person? That is someone who lacks any sense of grace in his or her dealing with you. This is the problem that Job faces after hearing the second speech from Bildad. As we saw last Sunday, there is no sense of grace in Bildad in this second speech. Um, For him, everything is black and white. If you do right, you will be rewarded. If you do wrong, you will be punished. Now, we do not disagree with much of what Bildad says. We do believe in a moral universe. We do view the world as an ordered moral universe. God is a just God. He is a good God. And virtue will be rewarded and the way of the wicked will perish. And further, we agree with Bildad in his speech that the moral order of the universe is essentially, completely, and fundamentally related to the natural order of the universe. So that to ask for a change in the moral order of things is the same as asking for a change in the natural order of things. This, by the way, is what Bildad was referring to in chapter 18, which we looked at last week in verse number 4. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place? I want to spend a few moments here. We didn't I look at it that closely last week, and uh, I think it's worth looking at because it runs contrary, I think, to the way that most people in our culture think. It, it's really counterintuitive. This is not uh, our first reaction, in part because we live in a culture that many generations later, uh, those who have gone on before us, really began to sort of put a split between the moral order of things and the natural order of things. So that we reach the point where when we talk about uh, what is moral, we see that as man-made. And when we speak of that which is natural, um, we speak of, well, that which nature gave us. That, that's just the way things are. And so when, if, if anybody says anything about something being moral or immoral or, or morally questionable, the standard reply is, well, that's your opinion. You know, for you, that may be immoral. For you, that may be morally questionable, but that's your opinion. But then when we speak of the natural order of things, and while people may have their differences, you know, their opinions, people do speak about scientific facts, scientifically based facts. And so in the modern world, we have the dichotomy value versus fact. Morality is value laden and uh, the natural order of things, that's fact based, that's scientifically based. And therefore, they're, they're two separate realities and they're not even connected. In our world, in our culture, to speak of the moral order of the universe and the natural order of the universe in the same breath is heresy. It is unacceptable to modern people. I think in part, there are a variety of reasons, but in part because modern technology allows us uh, oftentimes to temporarily escape the consequences of our actions. So that people can violate the moral order of the universe, but not necessarily suffer the consequences within the natural scheme of things. I was racking my brain trying to come up with an example that would be appropriate and also not offensive. And so I came up with the example of taking care of your teeth. 
which in my younger years I did not do, and therefore I have suffered the consequences for failing to do that. But if you think about it, with the advances in modern dentistry, a dentist can undo a certain amount of damage that we have done, either through neglect or simply just not doing the things we're supposed to do, or a dentist can replace what nature put there. So that there is this illusion that the consequences of my action really haven't come home. I don't take care of myself, uh, don't take care of my teeth, um, that's okay, I can get new teeth. Uh, the dentist can drill and, and fill in that cavity and I can live as though I did take care of my teeth, even though I really didn't. And you can think about this in all sorts of areas, that we can abuse our bodies and go to the doctor and get a pill and it will make things better. So we live in a world in which the consequences can be short-circuited. And therefore, the idea of there being consequences to our moral choices, the technology has really sort of ruined that idea, I think, for many of us. But I do think a big part of why we see a disconnect between the moral order of things and the natural order of things is because God in his grace oftentimes holds back the consequences of our actions. That we do things and we should, in fact, suffer certain consequences and God in his grace preserves us. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When you know, God had told Adam and Eve very specifically, when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. I think in the King James it says, on that day, on the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And they did experience death on a variety of levels. We've talked about this. Um, social death. They were separated from each other. They, were recognized, they recognized they were naked. Uh, Psychological death. Now, Adam experiences fear. He's not integrated. There's spiritual death. They are separated from God. There's ecological death. Now the ground is cursed because of them. But they didn't actually physically die that day. And I would say this was the grace of God. By the way, I don't know if you remember, but Adam lived to be 930 years old. I would see that as God's grace in allowing him to continue to live. I've talked to people who have told me, you know, in their past, I did something, I've done really stupid things, um, but I didn't get hurt. You know, I, I did something, I remember a friend telling me once that uh, he got drunk and got behind the wheel of the car and he made it home and he has no idea how that happened, but nothing happened to him. And in the scheme of things, that's got to be the grace of God. But the grace of God, I think, oftentimes raises certain questions. Is there cause and effect? Is there a connection between our moral choices and the consequences we experience in the natural world? No, God is just simply gracious. And there is a connection between the two. There is not this disconnect that we might imagine. Um, the psalmist writes wonderfully, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. But oftentimes, this grace is mistaken as evidence 
for a lack of connection between morality and consequences in the natural world. Because we don't get hit over the head every time we do something wrong, we, we imagine, well, there's no connection. I can do wrong things and not suffer the consequences in the real, real world. Because after all, morality is a construct. It's man-made. It's, it's not real. This is real. This is the real world. And, you know, if you jump off a two-story building, all things being equal, you'll probably hurt yourself, break a leg or something. But, but you can break God's law. You can break the moral law and the moral order. And things will, go, things will not go well with you. For Bildad, and though we dislike this man, or I do, intensely, we do agree that there is, there absolutely is a connection between the moral choices we make and what happens in the natural world. Unfortunately for Bildad, his view is far too narrow and limited, and as a result, it is distorted. For him, it's all black and white. Job is suffering, therefore Job must have done something wrong. God is limited in how he can deal with people. He must reward those who do good, and he must punish those who do bad. And though Bildad doesn't say this, it's got to be there in his thinking. Um, I'm not suffering. Things are going well with me. Therefore, I must be a good person, and God is rewarding me for the life that I am living. Bildad has a small view of Job, does not allow him the benefit of the doubt, and as we noted last week, there is no place for repentance in this, in this speech. In the first speech, he's like, you screwed up, come back. Come back and God will restore you. And here it is, you screwed up and you're pathetic. There is no call for repentance. There is no grace in Bildad's speech of chapter 18. Bildad also has a small view of God. That God cannot choose how he wants to act towards someone. Grace is not an option for Bildad. If, if God wanted to show mercy, Bildad, Bildad will not allow him to do that. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. And I think that Bildad has a rather grand view of himself. He has no need of grace. For Bildad, he is perfectly content to live in a universe where cause and effect works all the time. And things are going well with him, therefore he must be a good person. And it reinforces his extravagant view of himself. Well, how do you answer such a graceless person? A person who will not speak to you in grace. A person who does not ultimately believe in grace because God can't show grace. And a person who thinks they don't have any need of grace. How do you answer such a person? Well, in chapter 19, we find how Job chose to do this. And unlike his other responses we've seen thus far in the book of Job, usually he spoke to his friends and then he spoke to God. In this he addresses his friends only. He does not address God. First, he complains against his friends. And follow along, if you would, as I read the first six verses here of Job 19. Then Job replied, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. 
If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. In this speech, uh, Job is not simply re- replying to Bildad, but to all his friends. And we don't see it in English, but in Hebrew, the you there is plural. You plural, you guys. Um, he's addressing all of them. And he begins by asking how long are they going to keep this up? Tormenting him, crushing him with words. And we've seen in the past, words have incredible power. They have rebuked him, they have admonished him ten times, which can be taken one of two ways. Either literally, that we don't have all the speeches, that there have been thus far ten speeches, or figuratively, and we find this in the Old Testament, that ten is the number of completeness. You are, you know, you are completely, I mean, you have done this job on me, admonishing me and rebuking me. They have shamelessly attacked him. And in verse 4, Job begins his answer. And in his answer, I think he makes two large, if not huge, mistakes. But then he gets something right. And I'll put the mistakes together, but it's actually he makes a mistake and gets something right and then makes a mistake again. The first mistake is he tells his friends, if I have done anything wrong. And the word that is used here is an unintentional error. That is, it's not something he was even, that he consciously said, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. If he inadvertently did something wrong, he says, then it is my problem. It is between God and me and you have no part in this. Well, I think Job would feel completely at home in our culture because I think in modern people, if they have any sense of sin, Modern Christians in this country, if they have any sense of sin, that it is between me and God. It's not anybody else's business. This is between me and God. And on one level, this is true. God is the judge. He alone knows the extent of our guilt. Therefore, we need to be very careful in judging other people. We don't know what's going on inside of them. It is also between us and God because sin is breaking God's law. God says, don't do this or do this. And when we do it or don't do it, we break his law, okay? his instructions. And so we will answer to him and not to anyone else. But on the other hand, I think Job is wrong. Because our sins, inadvertent or deliberate, do affect other people. And we should not think of our sins as purely personal matters. If, in fact, Job's friends are right, that Job has done something wrong and God is dealing with him. Then his ten children were involved because they were all killed. Most of his servants were killed while protecting his flocks. So if Job has done something wrong, which he says he hasn't, but if he has done something wrong, then the consequences have affected not only him, but those around him. The Bible is a record of how individual sins, or the sins of individuals, have profoundly affected not only themselves, but others and sometimes countless others. Begins with Adam and Eve, which may not be a fair example because they were the first two and everyone that comes after them is affected by them. But let's just, I just want to mention a few examples. Abraham and Hagar. 
God told Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. They couldn't wait. They had waited um, for about ten years. They couldn't wait anymore. And so Sarah tells Abraham, go sleep with Hagar. He does. Hagar conceives. She gives birth to Ishmael. And the Middle East has been suffering the consequences of that choice for centuries now. What about Achan? We mentioned this in Sunday school. Israel comes across the Jordan River and then they march around Jericho for seven days. And miraculously, the walls come tumbling down. God told Israel, don't touch anything in there. It all belongs to me. But one man didn't listen, did not obey. A man named Achan. He took a robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold. And if you read about this in Joshua, it's fascinating because the next chapter begins. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. And we might say, no, uh, Joshua, Israel did not. Achan did. The point is very clear. He sins, it affects the whole nation. And in the next battle, uh, Israel is defeated because of one man's sin. What about the story of David and Bathsheba? He commits adultery and then commits a murder to cover up the adultery. And his kingdom is marked by political instability of the rest of his life. We could go on and on. It does raise significant questions and issues about God dealing or punishing others or affecting others because of someone's sin. I won't get into that. But I think it should impress on us the fact that no sin should be seen as, well, this is just between me and God. This is a victimless sin. Okay, This doesn't involve any of you. This is just between me and God. And the point is driven home in the New Testament when we are told that we are members of one body. And that when one person of the body does something they should not do, it can, in fact, affect the whole body. Again, I think culturally this is just unacceptable to us. We, in this culture, we are Americans and we choose our own destinies and I make my choices and I live by the consequences of my choices and it doesn't affect anyone else. That's the way we would like to think. Um, gave a lecture this past week. In the, in the 19th century, uh, American thinking shifted significantly. And, and one of the most significant shifts is that of co- uh, the thought of communal to individual. That religion was seen not now in terms of covenant with a community, but now it is seen as a personal thing. And it's, so it's in the 19th century that we begin to hear the phrase, your own personal savior. You know, accept Jesus as your own personal savior. That it's just about the individual, instead of the sense of the community that you're part of a community. I think we may end up agreeing with Job and miss the point that sin does, in fact, affect other people, and it it's not something I think to scare us, but we should be very aware. Uh, oftentimes, well, I shouldn't say oftentimes. There are times when people deliberately, consciously do something they know is not wrong. Okay? And certainly the temptation is to, to do that is around us all the time. I think we should stop for a moment and say, because I've heard people say, I'm going to do something that is wrong and I'm willing to accept the consequences. 
Well, isn't that nice? What about the rest of us? The consequences aren't just for you. It affects other people. And so here, Job, I think, uh, misses the boat. I think he is wrong. His sin, if there is an error, it isn't just between him and God. It has affected... His family's gone. His servants are gone because of his actions. The second mistake he makes um, is Job tells his friends, God has wronged me. In other words, God is wrong and I'm right. And Job is on really thin ice here. Uh, Who is he to accuse God of being wrong? You see, in Job's mind, if God is doing all these horrible things to him, and by the way, for Job, there can be no one else that is doing it. Uh, he does not, he's, he's not a dualist. Not, there's not a good God and an evil God, and they're fighting it out, and Job's sort of caught in the middle. There's only one God, and only God can do these things to him. Now, if God is doing this to him, and it is in response to what Job has done, then God is wrong. Because Job has not done anything wicked that God would do this to him. We know, because we know the story, that Job hasn't done anything wrong, that this is something that the accuser, Satan, is doing in Job's life. But we should be aware of something, and I think Job has sort of lost sight of it, and and who could blame him? He's in a devastated physical state. I think he's in a devastated psychological state. The reality is that all sin is worthy of death. Whatever Job is suffering, uh, it is far less than his sins deserve. Okay? We are told in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. You commit one sin, what is the punishment? Death. And so, God is not wrong. Job is not innocent in this matter. Job continues, by the way, in this vein, um, in verses 7 through 12, um, and we'll come to that in a minute. Talked about the two mistakes. What did he get right? Well, in verse number 5, Job calls into question the motivation of his comforters. And it really recalls the words of David in Psalm 35. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. If we go back to the first mistake that Job made, if I have sinned, that's between me and God. Job may be right in in a particular sense. If those who are speaking to him, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are graceless, They have no grace in their conversation with him. And if they are so graceless that they exalt themselves and say, we're good people and you're not, in the midst of this devastation that has happened to him, then they have no business talking about what he has done. They have no right to judge him. It is between Job and God. Because someone who has no sense of grace whatsoever should not enter into the conversation. They have disqualified themselves from conversing with Job about his moral status. Someone who has no grace has no right to speak about morality. 
And I, I think I cannot stress that enough. And yet, doesn't it seem oftentimes that people who are quickest to make judgments are those who have no grace, who have no sense of compassion toward others because they're too busy making judgments? Quickly with uh, the rest of this chapter, first of all, verses 7 through 12, which I think is self-explanatory, but can be summarized, I think, in one line. God is treating Job as though Job were his enemy. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way, so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp against my tent. Job simply says, there's no response from God, no justice. There's no passage. He can't make his way. There is no light, no honor. He has lost his position. His crown has been taken. There's no protection. There's no hope. God is his enemy and God is overreacting. He uses wonderful word pictures of building uh, a siege ramp. Um, in ancient times when they would have cities with stone walls, the enemy would come outside and would build a siege ramp out of dirt so that they could actually go over the wall. But if you look at the rest of the verse, God has built a siege ramp to go against Job's tent. You don't need the siege ramp against the tent. God is completely overreacting as Job sees it in his situation. God is hostile toward Job, and Job can't figure it out. Then in verses 13 through 20, not only is God being hostile toward him, God is causing other people to be hostile toward him or to be alienated from Job. Again, follow along if you would in verses 13 through 20. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only with the skin of my teeth. Again, this is self-explanatory, but I would submit to you that there are few things in life than, uh, that are more devastating than to lose close friends, to be alienated from those who are supposed to be close to you, your family, your friends, one's wife. And here at the end, it almost seems that Job is alienated from himself. It's like, I'm, a, I'm repugnant. I mean, not only does my, my breath put my wife off, but I'm nothing but skin and bones. I'm, I'm barely here. And this is what God has done, as Job sees it. 
So in verses 21 and 22, Job pleads for mercy. But interestingly enough, not from God, but from his friends. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? He needs... He's, people have left him. They've alienated him. His friends are there, but they're there only to sort of throw things at him. Will they just have compassion and mercy on him because God has turned away from him? Job has reached the bottom, or so it would seem. And yet, having reached the bottom, Job says, says some fairly amazing things. Follow along if you would as I read. First of all, verses 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were re- recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Job's not sure he's going to be around much longer. He wants somebody to write down his evidence. That somebody would make his case and write it down so that even after he's long gone, it will survive. And that people would know that he was innocent. And then we come to some of the most amazing verses in this book, beginning at verse number 25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Verses 23 and 24 might be described as wishful thinking. I wish somebody could take down my testimony on a scroll. I wish somebody could write this, etch it in a rock or on lead so it would be there permanently. But verse 25 begins... I know. That is to say, what we find in this last section is not wishful thinking, but in fact an affirmation. This is something that Job knows to be true. Job is convinced that he will be restored by his Redeemer. Now, we might be familiar somewhat with the word redeem. Um, and, and usually in economic terms more than in any spiritual terms that something is redeemable. But when we find this word in the Old Testament, we need to see how the Old Testament defines it. The word in Hebrew is the word goel, G-O-E-L. And it literally means not simply a redeemer, but a kinsman redeemer. Someone who is a relative who redeems you. According to Old Testament law, Again, this is where it's not just about the individual, it's about the family, about the clan. If someone in the family is killed, then the family, a kinsman redeemer, must avenge that death. That is how the law was set up. If a relative uh, was uh, taken captive or sold into slavery because of indebtedness, the kinsman, the relative redeemer, had the responsibility to go and buy him back or buy her back to redeem that person out of slavery. Or if a relative, a family member had to sell property, if you wish they had to hawk something, the pawn shop, a relative 
redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, had the responsibility of going and redeeming that. So one could argue that the, the position of being a relative meant being a deliverer, being someone who restored. A kinsman redeemer brought deliverance and they brought restoration. Is it surprising then that this is one of the names, one of the titles that we find given for God in the Old Testament? And in this passage, this is how Job identifies God. As one who delivers, as one who restores, as one who has a relationship to him that is significant. It isn't just God's up there and I'm down here. But he is, in fact, my kinsman redeemer. The Lord willing, I hope that next week we will look at this further. Because um, I think there's a lot here. and uh, We'll just get into it next week. Just a couple things before we go today. Grace should be the driving force in our dealings with others. Grace has to be what drives us as we deal with others. Otherwise, I think we may be guilty of thinking poorly of others, that, that there's no grace available for them. That we might think extravagantly about ourselves. We will forget that we are in desperate need of grace moment by moment. As Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's us. Okay. And we need to be careful that we not think too highly of ourselves. But also that we not think small thoughts of God. That somehow we limit what God can do and how he can act in human history. I would argue... You remember that Job told his friends, this is between me and God. And I argued that Job is, on one level, he's okay in saying that because there is no grace in how they're dealing with him. I would almost make, the, by extension, the application that the church today has been so graceless that the world says or can say to us, we don't want to hear anything you have to say. Or the world can say to us, how long will you torment us and crush us with words? That the church is not seen as preaching the good news. The church is seen as standing in judgment. That the church is not seen as having grace, having experienced grace ourselves moment by moment. Oh yeah, way back when, when we accepted Christ as our personal Savior, that individual thing, uh, we needed grace then, but but we're okay right now. And we sit up on our high perches and look down on the world. And no wonder people don't want to hear what we have to say. It is as though we do not wish God to be gracious toward others. It is as though we do not want to see grace in their lives. It is as though we have forgotten God's grace in our lives. And therefore, if we're not careful, we are graceless in the way we treat other people. I think the gospel will always offend people. I mean, the fundamental pre premise of the gospel is that God made the world, he made us, and we are sinners. We've broken that bond. 
I don't think people want to hear that. But I think that we can say this graciously, and I don't know that we have been. And then I would just remind you in closing um, that God is gracious, but one day he will judge the world. Grace, being gracious, is not the same as being soft. Okay. So when we are gracious, we're not saying, oh, oh, it doesn't matter what you do, that live and let live. No. Um, there will be a day of reckoning, a day of accounting. And we shouldn't make the mistake or allow others to make the mistake to think, oh, God has been gracious here, therefore uh, I've gotten away with it, or there's just a disconnect. Morality is separate from reality. No. We should embrace the grace of God, but understand what it means. Uh, God has, God is gracious because if he weren't gracious, we wouldn't be here. The planet wouldn't be here. We'd all be dead. In a world of cause and effect, the world would cease to exist. We need the grace of God. And he has, in fact, been gracious. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is amazing that we can take something so wonderful and so amazing for granted. And then we can set it aside so quickly and be so graceless as we live our lives and the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of others and the way we deal with others. I think that those who are not your people do have a good case for arguing that your church has been graceless and therefore they don't want to hear what we have to say. We do understand that if we were gracious, they still in many instances would not want to hear what we have to say. After all, Jesus came full of grace and truth and they put him to death. May we recognize our poverty and our our moment-by-moment need of you and of your grace and mercy. And keep that in our thinking as we deal with other people. May we be gracious in our conversations. May we be gracious in our dealings with others. That they might see Christ in us. And now as we leave this place, we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly.
Holy Host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.